Thank you, Kathy, for reading for us, leading us in prayer. Um, Again, we're back in uh, the book of Genesis because we are trying to discern what what we're calling the true story of the world. There's a lot of stories uh, out there about uh, what life is all about, what the meaning of life is. And uh, it's actually in the first chapters of Genesis that many of the questions that we have about not just origins, where did life come from, are answered, but questions about what's the purpose of life? Why are we here in the first place? These kinds of questions are answered in the first book of Genesis as well. Now, let me start this morning um, by just saying I, we're going to zero in on one verse. We're going to spend all our time vir- virtually on one verse. And I want to spend a lot of time on application. So I'm going to kind of explain that verse rather quickly uh, and then work hard on applying it, in part because our time is a little bit limited because of the other things we've had this morning already. Um, so that, I'm just, I don't know why I'm telling you ahead of, that time, ahead of time. I just felt like doing that. Um, so let's start. There is uh, on the back of the bulletin uh, an outline for you to follow along. Happens to be an outline that I kind of like, so I'll probably stick with it. Um, and hopefully there's a bit of time for questions at the end if you, may, if you have any. Let me start this way. Imagine you go over to a friend's house and you're, you, you walk into their house or their apartment and, and you notice that they have a microwave in their living room serving as, a, as an end table beside their couch. And they've got a lamp sitting on there and they've got their glass sitting on there. And I just saw someone hit her husband. That's, they're doing it. They're doing that. So they're like, oh, this is coming right from our house. Uh, no, so you saw this microwave as an end table and you looked at it you thought, boy, that's kind of odd. But then you asked, at one point you ask your friend, hey, is that a good microwave? It's hard to answer that question, right? It's hard to answer whether that's a good microwave or not because it's, it's a microwave that's serving as an end table and maybe it's, it's doing its job as an end table just fine, but it's not actually fulfilling its purpose. That's not what it was made for. And so you can't really answer the question whether it was a good microwave or not until you know that it's being used for the purpose for which it was made. Okay, that makes sense, right? What does that have to do with anything? Well, there's a philosopher by the name of Alistair McIntyre. He's a Catholic philosopher, brilliant guy. And he said, you know, I can't answer the question about whether something is good or not until I first answer the question, what is that thing for? How do you know someone has lived a good life? What makes a life a life well-lived. Last week we saw there's like one fly in this whole gym, and it's after me. Uh, Last week we saw that God is the great king who made the universe, and he made human beings as image bearers, and their purpose for existence is to carry out his will on earth as it is done in heaven. The question we're trying to understand this or answer this morning is, how do we do that? How do we fulfill our purpose? What are we made for as human beings? And it's right there in verse 28. 
In verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1, it says, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This, this verse contains what Christian theologians call the creation mandate. In other words, God made the universe, He made the whole world, in six days He made it, and then He said to the pinnacle of His creation, human beings, He said, here's what I want you to do with this world that I made, okay? And it explains what we're for as human beings. So we're going to look at... Try to answer the question this morning, what is the creation mandate? And you can follow along with your outline there. You'll see that there's a couple of of important aspects to the creation mandate and then some applications that we're going to make. Here we go. What's the creation mandate? Well, first of all, it says in verse 28, it says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Multiply and fill the earth. What does that mean? Typically, historically, a lot of Christians have just assumed that what that means is have babies. That human beings are supposed to procreate. You're supposed to have kids. And that's, that's not wrong, but that is extremely reductionistic. And it is not nearly as rich as this mandate is meant to be. So let's explore this. Remember the context, okay? This is Genesis. This was written to Moses or by Moses to the people of Israel who have just come out of Egypt. Remember, they've come out of this pagan context where Pharaoh was the image bearer of God. And Pharaoh's job was to tell those lousy peons what to do in order to fulfill the purposes of God on earth. That's the context, remember? And so the king job was to fulfill this mandate, multiply and fill the earth. Well, how did he do that? Well, he did that two ways. He did it numerically and he did it geographically. Geographically? Geographically. Numerically. How did he do it numerically? Well, he did it through the production of images. The more images a king had, the more glory a king had. So a king had to spend funds on making statues that looked like him, having coins printed with his image on it, and, and the only way he could do that was when he didn't have money, or he didn't have to spend all his money on going to war with other nations. So the proliferation of these images actually indicated that a king was powerful, had authority, had his kingdom under control, and, and, and was deserving of the honor and, and worship of his people, okay? That's the first half. But the other way was that he fulfilled this mandate geographically. It's all great to have thousands and thousands of statues that look like you, but if they're all sitting in your bedroom, they're not serving their purpose. And so these images were meant to be spread throughout the domain of the king. And the further the domain, the greater the extent of the glory of the king. So for example, you've heard of Alexander the Great probably, Alexander the Great conquered much of the known world as a young Macedonian, uh, and every city that he conquered, he actually renamed. And guess what he named it? Go ahead, throw it out there. Someone said it, but they don't want to say it loud because they don't want to be wrong. Alexandria, that's right. 
every city, Alexander the Great got him. Oh, no! (laughs) Curses, foiled again. Alexandria. Every city he conquered, he renamed Alexandria, and then he had a big statue of himself set up in the center of the city. And you know, that's, that's, that's not that weird if you think about it, because that's what happens today. If you look at dictators around the world, you watch footage of North Korea, for example, Kim Jong-un, un, right? Un's the one. Il or un? The dictator of North Korea, he has images of himself plastered all over that country. And because that's a reflection of his power and of his domination, okay? Now, you know, it's even, even the not so powerful do this. Like, the Kardashians are having another picture put up on Instagram all the time because the hits and the likes demonstrate that they are... Popular, which is just another way of describing glory. So this isn't a, a weird thing. This is a, a normal thing. So, so this idea of being filling the earth and, and multiplying is so much more than just have babies. It's actually make images. And filling the earth is not just inhabit every part of the globe, it's spread my glory, God's glory, with my images. In other words, what God wants is world domination. Now, maybe some of you are like, see, that's the problem with God. He's a megalomaniac who wants world domination. Why is God so preoccupied with himself and with his own fame and spreading it? That's a problem with God. Well, it would be if that's all God was after. But that's not all God is after. He's not just after making sure that everybody knows that He's God and nobody else is. It has to do with the second part of the creation mandate. If you look at part two of the creation mandate, it says, not just to fill the earth and multiply, but to subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves along the earth. What is that all about? This is another way of God saying, make the whole world a Garden of Eden. Now, we haven't read the Garden of Eden story because that's Genesis chapter 2. But when you read the Garden of Eden story, you discover that God created this garden, this place called Eden, which just means paradise, okay? And that was the place of God's presence and that was the place of God's absolute glory because it was the place where his will was perfectly known and perfectly obeyed. But it just so happens that in a place where God's will is perfectly known and perfectly obeyed, you're in a paradise. That place is paradise. That place is the utopia that all the old stories talk about. It's exactly what the human heart longs for. And so God, when he says, fill the earth and subdue it, when he says, subdue it and have dominion over it, what he's calling his image bearers to do, whose job is to bring his will on earth as it is in heaven, what he's calling them to do is to make the entire earth an Eden, to make the entire world a paradise, to spread his image through the four corners of the globe, which is a weird thing to say, four corners of the globe. But we say it. To spread his image through the four corners of the globe, 
through ruling over everything. Did that, you don't have to, I'm not asking you to agree with me, I'm just asking you if you understood what I was saying. Yeah? Do we understand what we're talking about so far? We're tracking? Okay. Now, I know people don't like this language of subdue, dominion. It sounds like dominate, right? It sounds like human beings are supposed to wrestle this wild earth to the ground and, and suck all its resources out of it and use it for, for, for their own purposes. And, it, and that's where things like environmental degradation come from and, and, and a host of other problems. But that's, that's unfortunately, that has, that has happened. People have used Bible store, uh, the Bible's uh, call to subdue the earth for that purpose, but that's not the purpose for which God calls human beings to subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth. Remember the context. In Genesis 2, God creates the man and he puts him in the garden, and it says that he put him in the garden to tend for the garden and to care for the garden. And even in the grander story of Genesis 1, if you look up at Genesis 1 verse 2, if you have a Bible, you can see that it says the earth was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The world was formless and void. And when God created, as the Spirit hovered over the waters, when God created, He created order from the void, formless chaos, you see? And this is what He calls human beings to do with the world in which we live. Remember the garden idea. When you go into a garden, how do you, why is it a garden and not just a wild, well, some gardens end up this way. My garden ends up this way every year. But if you, if you have a properly tended garden, it produces fruit and vegetables. Why? Because it's been properly tended. It's been properly cared for. All the latent potential that was in that garden has been wisely nurtured by the garden in order to produce the fruit or vegetables at the end of the growing season, right? Well, when you start a business, you take all these disparate human elements and you organize that chaos in such a way that you produce something good for humanity. Or, or you take uh, all these disparate natural or even unnatural resources and you take the chaos that is them and you bring them together in such a way that you produce a product that is useful and meaningful for the world and helpful for human flourishing. Or when you're a teacher... You're, you're cultivating the latent potential in students and organizing it in such a way that they, they are able to use it for the benefit of humankind, or even more than humankind, the whole world. You're, taking, you're creating order out of chaos. When you counsel someone, you're taking di a disorderly life and you're helping bring order to that life. When you're a contractor, when you're in medicine, when you're in business management, when you're a groundskeeper, when you clean your house, okay? When you run a comb through someone's hair, you're doing what the Spirit did. You're, you're creating order out of the chaos that's there. You're doing what human beings were made to do, were created to do. So those are the two parts, okay? Okay? Filling the earth, 
numerically and geographically with God's images and bringing the order out of the potential that is in this chaotic world in a way that all of creation flourishes. Not just us, not just us Westerners, and not just white people, and not just human beings, but all of the created order. Those are the two things. Now, the implications for this are, they're almost endless, frankly. Um, it's like when you drop a rock in a pond and the ripple effects just go. This teaching has had profound implications for the entire history of civilization. I love always making those dramatic statements. But it's actually true. It is actually true. But we are going to limit ourselves to three applications this morning. Two of them I'm going to say relatively quickly. One I'm going to say a long a longer thing about it, and then we're going to close. First of all, okay, the first application. All throughout Genesis 1, you get, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. Everything was good. And then in verse 31, after God has finished creating humankind and finished giving them the creation mandate, instead of just saying God saw that it was good, it goes a step further and it says God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Here's the first implication. Work is good. Work was created good. God made work to be something that is fulfilling to human beings. God made work to be something that's not a chore and not a tremendous burden. The, the chore and the burden that work is, that came because of Genesis chapter 3, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, because sin entered into the world. But originally, God created to be work to be a wonderful, fulfilling things for human beings, okay? This idea that work, you know, you know TGIF, thank goodness it's Friday, and Freedom 55 so that you can retire and not have to work. All these ideas, they don't come from the Bible. They come from the Greeks, frankly. You ever heard of Pandora's box? Pandora was the biggest. Work. That's what the Greeks thought about work. And that's why the Greeks thought slavery was totally fine. Because you let the slaves do the work so that the really important people can sit back and relax and chill. And, and, and like contemplate, you know, the important things in life, that kind of thing. But that's not the biblical idea of work. The biblical idea of work is that it is inherently good. Now, admittedly, it's messed up by the fall. But that doesn't make work the problem. It makes sin the problem, okay? That's the first one. The second implication is, is that all work, therefore, is dignified. If it's done... For the well-being and the flourishing of the created order, it is dignified. Now listen, that flies in the face of our cultural narrative. How many of you know who, i got to get his name right because <laughs> I didn't know who he was. How many of you know who Jeffrey Owen is? Do you recognize that name? 
common, it became a well-known name in the last couple of weeks because Jeffrey Owen was one of the actors on uh, The Cosby Show. He played Sandra's husband, okay? And he was a very funny character. And the reason that name is famous now is because a couple of weeks ago, somebody was at a Trader Joe's in New Jersey, and they saw that Jeffrey Owen was bagging groceries. And so they took a picture of him, and they put it on the gram, or they put it on Facebook, or whatever, one of those social media things. And it went viral, because everybody was like, oh, how far Jeffrey Owens has fallen. Poor guy, he was an actor, and now he just bags groceries. And you know what the narrative behind that is? Bagging groceries, undignified, being an actor, a successful actor. That's a very dignified uh, vocation. But the Bible says that all vocations, whatever you do, if you're doing it with the, with the goal of bringing the order out of the chaos, it is meaningful. Take cleaning, for example. We would say, most people would say, well, cleaning is kind of a menial task, but think about it. If you don't clean your house, or if you don't pay someone to clean your house, eventually you will get sick and die. And yet people look down on cleaning. I don't think any of you will die physically if I'm not doing my job. And yet, our culture says that you need to have a certain job, you need to have a certain education, there is certain prestige, because it's very often tied to income, right? And that is a measure of success. And the Bible says no. You know, Martin Luther, he was always famous for saying that the, 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 the housewife washing dishes at the kitchen sink gives as much honor to God as the minister preaching God's word from the pulpit. If she, if she does her job with the goal of bringing about the glory of God and the flourishing of humanity. All work, okay? So you, all you university students who hate being in university because you don't know what you're doing there and you really know that what you want to do is you want to go work with your hands. Don't let the world tell you that it's demeaning to work with your hands. You know, I have, I just, this is just a little bit of an aside. Do I have time to quickly, very quickly, okay? I grew up in a grocery store, bagging groceries for people and working in the deli and stuff like that. I have a tremendous amount of respect for people who work retail, particularly in like fast food and, or in the mall, that kind of thing. Their job is to serve mostly grumpy people who don't have the time of day for them who if they could just like press a button, their Tim Hortons coffee would show up in their pickup truck or in their car or whatever so they could just carry on with their very important lives. And yet, here are people in retail who are not making very much money, but if they, if they do their job with a sense that it is meaningful in the sight of God, they have an opportunity to bring blessings upon people that they don't even realize they're receiving. You can put a smile, they put smiles on people's faces they make, they make the, the experience of the shopping that much better. And we consider it very often a very kind of menial type task. But think about how much shopping, those of you who aren't in retail, think about how much shopping you do. Think about how much, uh, uh, what's the word, um, interaction you have with, with workers who are in retail over the course of a day or a week or a month. And if we would give honor to all forms of work, I think 
the world would be a better place. All right, that's the second one. Third one, though, and this is the one, this one's, I got to be careful here. I got to make sure I say this right. This has been heavy on my heart for a long time. And this is a sensitive subject, but this, I think, is really important. In the outline, it says, everyone is a parent. Now, what am I trying to say? God's goal is to see His image, His image, people who know Him, who love Him, and who serve Him. If you know God, you love God, you serve God, you're fulfilling your purpose, okay? That's, that's the purpose of humanity. Now, if that's the lens through which we think of this mandate to fill the earth and to multiply, I think we start to get a much bigger picture, a much fuller biblical picture of this idea of having children. It is a natural desire for human beings to want to have children. And it is a good desire. But we know, and as a congregation, I think we know really well, that that doesn't always happen for people. And that can be a tough burden to bear. That can be a tough burden to bear in the church. Churches are often places where families are celebrated, and rightfully so, because family is a great gift from God. But it can be tough if you're hoping to have a family, if that's the dream that you're, you're search, searching for, and, and maybe you're single and you haven't found someone to have a family with, or maybe you're suffering from infertility as a couple and you're not able to, to procreate, procreate in the, the typical way. And now we live in an age where we have something called IVF treatments, and they are a real, that's a real gift in a lot of ways. It is allows, allows us as human beings to continue to pursue this dream. But it also allows us to continue to pursue this dream with, a, with, an, an, with an extreme intensity. Just recently, there was a, a viral video or viral picture. Some of you may be aware of this viral picture. It was of a little baby wrapped up in swaddling clothes with uh, a heart made of syringes all the way around it. Anybody familiar with this? Like one person, wow. Because I'm not all that, I don't know what's going on in the world, really. So I'm a bit surprised. Well, the reason this, this picture was taken was because the parents wanted to show that after four years, three miscarriages, and 1,600 injections, they were finally able to have a child. And all the media coverage about this photo was virtually positive, all of it. Very, very little was, was asked in terms of, of the ethical question, can do something? If it's possible to do something, you should be free to do it. And you shouldn't really have to ask questions about whether you should do it or not. You should be free to do it. I'm not so sure. I don't know all the answers around IVF treatments, and I don't, I don't even understand all the science behind it and how it all works. I don't understand all of it. I will, I will give a little plug that in November, Hope for Waiting Hearts is hoping to have a speaker come in to talk to the group about embryo adoption, and that's something that some of you may find worth listening to and thinking about. And as someone who has 
biological children himself, it might be easy for you to look at me and say, well, you know, it's as easy for you to talk about, like ask, asking questions about IVF, and you don't know what the pain is of bearing the burden of not being able to, to have your own kids, so-called, your own natural biological children. But, but this is actually why I want to speak into this, okay? If the biblical view of procreation is to fulfill God's goal, not my individual goal or desire, that, that the biblical view is not about having little me's walking around or my DNA necessarily, my specific DNA passed on to next generation. In other words, if the, the real issue is not my image, but His image, that that's what really matters. For those of us who find ourselves with the pain of being, being unable to conceive of, of our own biological children, or for those who, who find themselves single and not married and not able to pursue that part of our dreams for our lives, those kind of people, you can have a comfort that comes from this knowledge. Because all people can participate in the actual biblical mandate, which is to have God's image spread over the world. If you adopt children... And you teach them to know and love Jesus and they grow up and they follow Jesus with their lives. You have fulfilled the biblical mandate, the creation mandate. Or if you foster children, and I, I'm so thankful for the growing interest in fostering in this little community uh, by people who are thinking of doing it, but also by people who aren't going to do it themselves, but they want to support people in the congregation who do it. This is a wonderful thing, because if you foster, and for however little time you have that little one who is in need, whether it's for a couple months or a couple years, while they're in your care, you have the opportunity to expose them to the Jesus who loves them no matter what their circumstances or where they come from, you are participating in the creation mandate. If you are an uncle or an aunt to nieces and nephews and you have the opportunity to, talk, to, to model what it means to follow Jesus in your life circumstances, you are participating in the creation mandate. If you hang out in nursery or if you teach in grace kids or if you participate in youth ministry, in any way that we lead little ones to Jesus, regardless of our own personal nuclear family life, we can fulfill our calling and we are not less of a man, not less of of a woman, we are just as much part of that kingdom calling. And as a church, we need, we need to live this biblical worldview and actually in the way we interact with each other as brothers and sisters in the church, we need to make everyone feel like they're part of that calling. Last thing. That was rousing, Paul. Inspira inspirational and inspiring. But when I walk out that door, it's still going to suck. And not just for people dealing with that, but people who are underemployed, who have worked really hard towards a certain vocation and they find themselves underemployed and not fulfilled in their work. 
people who want to be in relationships and find themselves going home alone and single, it's going to suck. And I, I admit that's true. And that's because things just aren't the way we want them to be. And you know what? We know deep down that things aren't the way they should be. And the pain that you feel over the unfulfilled dream is not just a pain that comes from being selfish or a pain that comes from being an idolater, wanting something too much. Sometimes that's the case. Yes, sometimes we put way too much stock in these kinds of things and we do need to repent and we do need to turn from them. But that's not always the case because these desires are good and they exist because they are woven into the reality of the world in which we live and they are woven into our very hearts. But the problem is, is that this reality that we're living in is broken. It's not working the way it's supposed to, and so it can't deliver. And that's why you need the gospel. You need the gospel because in the gospel, we learn that Jesus came into this world to heal this reality. So that one day, not today and maybe not even in this lifetime, but one day all our longings will finally be fulfilled. Because Jesus died for our sin. And in doing that, he removed the judgment that sits on us and sits on the entire creation. And he rose again, okay, as the first fruit of the new creation. Proving, guaranteeing that all his promises will come true. His promise that he will come back. And his promise that he will make everything that is wrong right. And that every unfulfilled heart will finally be filled to bursting. You can be sure that that promise is true. Um, let me close with this. Uh, C.S. Lewis, as you know, is one of my favorite authors, and I love almost everything he's written. And, but one book, just strange. Not, most, guys, most people don't think this is one of his greatest works, but I do. It's a little book called The Great Divorce. And in that book, he tells the story of a group of people from hell who get on a bus, and they take a bus trip to the outskirts of heaven. And they get a taste to see what heaven will kind of be like. And, and the idea is that they have an opportunity to either accept that and go into that or stay where they want to be. But there's this one incredible scene where the guide takes C.S. Lewis and he, he takes him to the outskirts of heaven. And, and see, the, the character sees this figure coming towards him and he can't quite make out the figure because it's just blinding bright light. And so this is the exchange. Listen to this. Is it, is it, like, is it Jesus? I whispered to my guide. Not at all, said he. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. I, she is one of the great ones. You've heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. Haven't you ever read your Milton? That's a 
reference to Paradise Lost. A thousand liveried angels lackey her. And, and who are these young men and women on each side? And this is the part I want you to hear. They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son. Even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on their own parents? No. There are those that steal other people's children. But her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. What's Lewis describing? He's describing a love so powerful, so effective, so Christ-like, that she helped produce these, these little images of God wherever she went, all over her life. And then in the new creation, it was seen that they were her children too. Maybe you labor in a job and you think, there ain't much to it. There's not much prestige in what I do. Or maybe you don't have the family you expected and longed for. And you feel the ache of that unsatisfied dream. Look at how God created this world. He created it in such a way that if we are pursuing His goals, we never lack anything. And whatever we feel we lack now, we certainly will not at the return of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your truth. Thank You for Your gospel. Help Help the gospel truth, help it reprogram us when we want to think that certain kind of job is the only way to, to know dignity or a certain kind of family is the only way to find satisfaction. Help us to know deep in our hearts that that's a lie of the devil, that that is not true because you, you've created us for something much more than ourselves. You've created us for you. And there are myriad ways for us to have even our own hearts, longings fulfilled so long as we pursue you. In Jesus we pray, amen.